Pride and Protest acknowledges that this episode is recorded on stolen land. Sovereignty was never ceded and decolonization needs to be a central part of what we do in our activism because without the freedom of Aboriginal people, there is no freedom for the working class as a whole. Welcome to another episode of the Pride in Protest podcast. Today on the episode, you have myself, Charlie. I'm a member of Pride in Protest and a Skull Alliance member and a sex worker as well. Evan, if you want to introduce yourself. My name's Evan. I recently did an audit of the unions that I'm a member of, and it's probably too many in the Retail Fast Food Workers Union, the National Tertiary Education Union, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, the United Workers Union, a student member of the Teachers Federation. And I hope that's that. Yeah, really just a rat bag from Pride and Protest when it comes down to it. Happy to be here. You really just are, you know, just the ultimate union nerd. You're just collecting every single union that you can be in. Yeah, it's like seeing litter on the ground and be like, ooh, that's a new union. That's a new union. <laughs> you're, you're, you're working class literally by the fact that you have to pay so many dues that it keeps you <laughs> being working class. And we have Cleo, if you can introduce yourself. Cleo Carly is my full name. I'm a professional dominatrix from Sydney, also a member of Scarlet Alliance, but only the one not quite union so far. So we've had three sessions since we last did a little summary ep about sex work. First one is about real life unionization attempts here in Australia and New Zealand. And then a session on looking at what the Nordic model is and also what the rescue industry is. So I think we might start at what we think is not a good way to have laws around sex work versus what we think is good, i.e. unionization. Yeah, let's start with our conversation of the Nordic model. So does someone want to give a summary of what the Nordic model is and generally why it's bad for sex workers? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Nordic model is a law that purports to protect sex workers, almost always understood to be like victims of gendered violence within like a kind of rad femme framework. And it purports to do this by criminalizing the buying or the purchasing of sex rather than the selling of sex, which in practice sounds appealing to a lot of feminists and just well-meaning other people not involved in the sex industry. Yeah, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> Basically, in the, the Nordic Model Week, we looked at a paper from Sweden about Sweden abolitionist discourse and law called Effects on the Dynamics of Swedish Sex Work and on the Lives of Sweden's Sex Workers. And that paper looked critically at the conditions for sex workers by the Nordic Model in Sweden, which I think was where the Nordic Model was first begun. It's definitely been around in Scandinavia for longer than anywhere else in the world since the early 2000s. And in AIM, the law attempts the abolition of prostitution through criminalizing demand rather than through the criminalization of workers selling sex as I said but yeah by the law's own measure of success which is a decrease in the number of sex workers it just it hasn't worked there's been a decrease in the number of street sex workers in Sweden but that could easily be explained by other factors like the rise of online sex work and better access to advertising websites as well as some of the impacts of laws like this mean that people are necessarily having to be better hidden and less honest about the fact that they're doing sex work and the conditions in which they're doing sex work so in practice the nordic model often just means migrant workers are deported other workers are possibly evicted from their houses because their landlords are seen to be profiting off the proceeds of prostitution sometimes when workers work together as they we found out in there was an article that we looked at in the nordic model week also from ireland where two migrant sex workers had been arrested and i believe deported for working together like working together in the same flat which is understood to be brothel keeping so there's just 
there's a number of ways in which this law doesn't help sex workers at all. And most of the time, it actually makes the experience of doing sex work a lot more dangerous and less safe. Yeah, I know from my experience watching the debates around the Nordic model, it's particularly pernicious in terms of migrant workers, because one of the things that I've picked up like from the island reading and some of the readings in the week, but also just generally seeing it in the left, is that in the Nordic model, and it's interesting when people say that, you know, they're sex work abolitionists, because that's usually the one thing they're abolitionist for. And that means that police and, you know, the Department of Immigration kind of become bosses for workers in one form or another. And what does that mean, say, for a migrant worker whose work has just become illegitimate? And that's kind of their reason for being here. It actually wedges people into this weird bit where in order to defend their livelihood, it wedges you into, do you defend your bosses, like in order to keep earning money? Or do you defend yourself? And like, where is that clear line? So I think we should also look at the Nordic model as like, one, it's a pro-cop thing, and that it like enshrines police in the role of bosses. But it is a way of like breaking down working class self-identification and fighting for one's own interests. Like you really do need decriminalization in order to support people to unionize. And so it really comes down to why I think it's particularly striking like when Cleo mentions like that it's a radical feminist critique actually I think we need to be clear that like you know it's a radical feminist critique and it's not a like pro-union critique at all like it's not a leftist critique or anything else it's actually just something that bashes down a section of the working class and just like completely disgusting to look at like the experience that I've seen is actually it just migrants being deported and usually white women who are helping to lead this campaign to save sex workers by putting them out of a job and out of a country. It's really not a good legislation and framework. And I think what's worth noting about the practical application of it is it's really just putting this, you know, supposedly feminist face on the exact same tactics that we see with other models. You know, it really does remind me of the legislation model that Queensland has. And the laws in Queensland are so prohibitive about what the things that you can do in Queensland are, that it means that a majority of sex workers in Queensland work illegally in order to work safely. So when Cleo mentions that two workers can't be working out of the same apartment. It's the same for Queensland. You know, you can't have two workers in the same apartment. It's considered a brothel. Therefore, they would need to register it. If they don't register it, they're working illegally. Same with, you know, prosecuting people based on the fact that they have condoms. That's used both in criminalization and legislation models if people are working illegally versus the Nordic model. So at the end of the day, the process by which the work of a sex worker is stopped or is is prosecuted Executed by the police is done through the exact same means. So you have to ask the question, you know, if the Nordic model is this feminist response, and I think Evan is right, we have to be honest and say that it's not pro-union, it's not pro-worker, it's also not pro-women. I think that has to be said as well that they, if they're using the exact same tactics as the old model, well, not so old, it's still used, then you have to question really how much daylight is there between them. And I think the answer is that there isn't any because it's the same story that the actual workers in both models are not seen to be the determiners of their own labour and to have the right to their own self-determination. Yeah, it plays straight back into Melissa Girigrant's prostitute imaginary as well, in that if your landlord can be criminalised for living off the proceeds of prostitution, then you are seen as always being a prostitute or always being a sex worker, always being on, as we said in the first couple of weeks. 
So we also in that week, we read an article which summarized the state response to sex workers under the Cuban revolution. And I think this reading is a really good example of when you have a form of state socialism that without actual unionization of the workers, you're also going to end up with a situation in which you are hurting workers just this time round under the name of communism. Does someone want to quickly summarize what's in that reading or, or what happened to sex workers once the Cuban revolution had started? Yeah, I think what happened in Cuba Obviously, there was that form of, I suppose, revolution. But what's interesting in this experience of revolution is that we had this reform that came, the promise that, you know, we would all, every person in the world would get into this job and be empowered. But what does that mean for people for whom it's not on their terms? Like, you know, what does working class action mean if the workers themselves actually don't support that reform? So when the left came into power, and I think it's important to clarify that like the left in Cuba is not the same as the left as we know it in Australia. It's a very different political tendency and is more Marxist-Leninist in orientation. But coming into power and then in their interactions with sex workers, basically it's like bust. We shut down the industry, but sex workers don't seem to like that. So then they have to forcibly like go through all the brothels, criminalize as many people as possible, and then try to put people in jobs that they don't want to do that pay them less. And it actually didn't work. Like it was one of the most well-resourced implementations of what would then become known as the Nordic model. And it did not put people in jobs that they were necessarily happy with. It also did not actually end the industry. And what we have is just the reality that these approaches don't work, but they do fuck over a whole bunch of people who really don't like it. And so you're left wondering, you know, what does a revolution that is based on the working class mean if the working class in some way, shape or form resists it, not on a like right-wing basis, but on a left-wing basis of not wanting to be put out of a job. And I think you can look at the contradictions there and see that this really doesn't make sense for anyone. It also starts troubling the narrative when you look at the Marxist-Leninist perspective of you just throw more jobs at it and you just try to universalize early childhood education, create a welfare system. And in this situation, there were people still wanting to do the job. And I don't think it's because personally that I think any job is a great job, not sex work, not anything, because I think no one likes having to do completely something for money. It would be great if we could have free food. But at the end of the day, if you can do all these reforms and you can even have cops going around trying to criminalize work effectively under a communist state and you still can't get that thing that you want, maybe it's the wrong goal. Maybe the goal should be liberation. Maybe the goal shouldn't be sex work abolition. Like It's like putting it in the wrong <laughs> direction. Yeah, I think what was striking about that reading was the way that they talked about the workers was like, oh, it was very difficult to separate the sex workers from their pimps or their bosses, essentially treating them as, you know, as this reactionary class, which is, you know, at the end of the day, like, find me sex workers who like their managers and bosses. It really is insulting in a way to say, you know, like, oh, these women, it's almost treating them as these fallen fallen women who can only rely on men. You know, they don't have their own agency or their own confidence to, you know, be a woman that feels separate from a man. And so again, it's this effect of blaming the workers themselves for their condition or saying that they're too reactionary to do anything about it, which is the same as in criminalization models. You know, they're either treated to be someone as to be saved or someone who can't be. And a lot of the programs that were 
implemented for these workers basically mirror today what we would call the rescue industry and some of the tactics that are used to get women out of sex work under the name of this time under the name of trafficking in order to put them into other forms of work. So that seems a good way to parlay into the next session that we did, which was on the rescue industry. So what we broadly describe as the rescue industry is a combination of pressure groups who are looking to use language around international human rights and paddocks about human trafficking and labour trafficking as a way to put forward an abolitionist narrative of sex work under the guise of discussing human trafficking, sex trafficking and labour trafficking. It involves pressure groups, it involves NGOs that put people into certain forms of work instead of sex work. It also heavily involves police forces and immigration forces because normally the conclusion of, you know, laws or policies that are based around stopping human trafficking via stopping process Constitution just ends up deporting workers if they're prosecuted under these laws. So just sending them back to their home country rather than providing them with any form of welfare. Yeah, let's get into the rescue industry. So Ali and I picked the readings for the rescue industry week. So we looked first at, so I guess, arguably the birth of the rescue industry, although it definitely has tendrils that reach further back, especially to these sorts of frameworks that we just spoke about in the Cuban example, definitely played into it. But where the reading sort of starts is in the early 2000s and the Iraq war. And it's the beginning of an alliance between these sort of like radical or rather carceral feminists that we've already been discussing and this narrative around rescue and this sort of like infantilizing and condescending view of people in the sex industry that posits them as even needing to be rescued in the first place and the ways in which this faction have worked together with the hardcore Christian fundamentalist right in order to bring about the sort of policy changes that they wish to see. So yeah, that was a Melissa Gira Grant article again. And then we also looked at a study of migrant experiences in Australia in sex work, which overwhelmingly sort of told us that their experiences are much the same as every other sex worker's experiences in Australia. They have the same challenges, the same working conditions that need to be addressed, sometimes worse, sometimes better. You know, in almost all cases, they said that they were earning better money in Australia than they had been in their home country and that they wish to stay here and continue doing the work. So I think that sort of immediately addresses this narrative that carceral feminists like to push in the rescue industry of these people needing to be saved or rescued or given a job in some other gendered industry like a textiles factory for three times the amount of work and half the amount of pay per week which is sort of often where these rescue attempts end up if they're even implemented at all and we also looked at yeah, we looked at another reading from the book We Too, which is a direct response to the Me Too movement by a number of different sex worker contributors that wrote essays for the book. And the book is sort of aimed at feminists, I suppose, and their ignorance of sex workers' stories when it comes to the Me Too movement and their refusal in a lot of cases to see sex workers as workers before they see them as people involved in sexual industries. So the next reading we looked at was called Victim Defendant, Women of Colour Complicating Stories About Human Trafficking. And it was written by Krista Marie Sacco. So this essay basically looked at a couple of different 
fictionalized stories based on real stories of people who would currently be considered victims of sex trafficking under US law, but in all three cases were actually involved in sex work of their own volition and agency. And I think that that's sort of an important intersection to look at. I think sex workers spend a lot of time distancing themselves from sex trafficking with good reason. Sex workers shouldn't have to explain the existence of sex trafficking any more than a voluntary organ donor should have to explain the existence of organ trafficking. But at the same time, trying to create a binary between sex work and sex trafficking often means that we ignore the voices of the people who have been involved in both. And in a lot of cases, especially in the US, if you have been sex trafficked, you're probably going to end up with prostitution charges on your record. You might have further complications from being involved in these industries for however long you've been involved in them. You might not have transferable skills. You might not be given other employment opportunities because you've got a criminal record or because of the stigma associated with doing sex work in the first place. And so often victims of sex trafficking, once they have been quote unquote rescued, end up going back into sex work with full consent and agency. I mean, as much as anyone can have full consent and agency under capitalism. So yeah, I think that was an interesting essay to look at because it really spoke to that perspective of people who've been involved in sex trafficking and been involved in sex work. And it illuminates the fact that we don't listen to those voices anywhere near enough. Yeah, I think an interesting thing to look at is also how long people haven't been listening, because every time I read something, you know, even sex workers, you know, in the beginning of capitalism, there's this vein of how sex workers can be saved. But then like scratching underneath it as well, there's usually another agenda of exploitation. One of the things that's like really interesting to look at, you know, what is like a basic rescue industry? And I think of how, and it's something that I've been getting into a little bit, you know, in terms of history, but in Ireland, like Mary Magdalene houses, there's this long experience essentially of like, oh, these women must be sex workers. We'll put them in these centers and basically use them as like slave labor. In some ways you could say, you know, maybe it gets better, but modern rescue industry, as I've seen it in Australia, is really gross, which is a bit of an understatement. I guess peak example is um, Project Respect that I kind of remember in Victoria, which is run by this like rogue greens person, Kathleen Maltzahn, who's like every leftist favorite person to hate. I remember being part of a young greens release and comment urging people to not campaign for her. But she was a counselor on Yarra, which then funded her program Project Respect. You look at that insidious level of funding about getting sex workers out of the industry, many of whom are sex workers and into shit jobs. That's exactly what we're all campaigning against with the job search provider. Like every person's like, wow, those JSPs are shit. We hate like Serena Russo. We hate like all these like employment services that are basically exploiting people. It's the exact same thing, but then people are like, wow, you know, somehow we stand this for sex workers as if it's meant to be a good thing. And it's not. It's just another form of policing. And I think the other thing to tie into is like how the trafficking narrative is one that actually just bolsters the right in this sense. So whether it's used for like McCarthyism or like homophobia or whatever, there's this long train of like, oh no, the moral panic over sex workers means we need like the greater ability to crush like migrants because, you know, white slavery or white kids are in peril. But you look at actually how trafficking is used by the right and refugees is a good example about how Kevin Rudd will go on camera being like, people smugglers, so awful. And you find out what's people smuggling. Well, a good chunk of the refugees are criminalized as people smugglers and then put in indefinite detention. And there's this concern with trafficking, which I think, you know, it's really legitimate to talk about trafficking and like what you want to do, which is then interwoven with the refugee question. And suddenly all these 
refugees need to defend around like the idea of people smuggling. Actually, no, they should just have the right of asylum. And you can see that this like double standard beat up is just like so screwed up. And that's kind of like the narrative around trafficking has echoes there. The issues around the rescue industry, so much like the JSPs that we're trying to fight to regulate welfare recipients. And so it just shocks me that there's someone like Kathleen Maltzahn or many other leftists, well, I wouldn't really call them leftists, I'd say pseudo leftists, who pose around that with the rescue industry and think that's a good idea. You ask any lefty person, the JSPs are a good idea or people smuggling laws are a great idea. They're going to say no, because it's so fucking obvious. But somehow people are like, sounds like a great idea. Let's see if I can make some money off of it. And that's what you do. You just follow the money. And well, it's fucked. (laughs) Definitely. Especially because the problem at the root of both people smuggling, like, you know, from the context of refugee law and people smuggling from the context of sex trafficking is criminalized borders. Like in both cases, the problem is actually a systemic problem of criminalized borders and wealth inequality, both of which not able to be addressed through the carceral system. hundred percent. I mean, refugees can't even get reliable jobs here. Like they're just locked into poverty as if any like carceral feminist is like, oh yeah, let's criminalize sex work and do a rescue industry. Actually, like maybe refugees getting jobs, maybe that's where we should be concerned with supporting people. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, mentioning whoever that fucking person is, you know, like she's just cashing a check. All these people are cashing a check off fucking women's misery. You know, that's the thing. They're not helping them. They're cashing checks through these organizations. And I think it's disgusting. You know, and we talk about the police being bosses a lot through these kinds of things. And it's quite shocking how in the US, you know, like they really are bosses in the sense of like they act as JSPs, you know, it's it's not just them criminalizing the work and, and barring them from the work itself. It's actually them then putting them into programs into which they're doing other jobs, you know. They are literally like job facilitators as the police. And so I think that's, you know, a really stark and clear example of how the police are used not just to suppress labor, but actually to direct it in the ways that are in the interests of the ruling class and done through means of, you know, I mean, an employer normally has the ability to make you afraid of firing them. You know, in this case, the police are giving them the choice of either testifying against their trafficker, testifying against, you know, an individual who's very potentially dangerous or being deported, you know, <laughs> like the threat level and the coercion that's used by the police in this case as a boss is just astronomical. Yeah, I think it's probably also worth pointing out something that we got from that other Melissa Gira Grant reading on the coalescence between the quote unquote left and the right on sex trafficking is that those laws are then exported to the rest of the world. So the US's position on sex trafficking and sex work work, which purposely conflates the two, that is then exported to a lot of other countries that rely on USAID because they refuse to give aid to any NGO in any other country unless that NGO takes an explicitly abolitionist stance on sex work. So, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not even relegated to the imperial core. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was reading about a precedent in the 19th century, which was called like the White Slavery Act or something. I don't know if you have come across this, but yeah, basically there was a moral panic about someone went somewhere in Europe and saw some English 
workers and they were basically like oh there are some sex workers here they all must have been trafficked so they went back to England and then you know a tabloid rag did a write-up about it did a beat-up and it basically ended with all these demonstrations and this mass panic around people being trafficked to other countries that it formed the basis of criminal legislation in a domestic sense in Britain and it was also used to some degree there was some white slavery panic between South Australia and New South Wales in the 19th century as well, which also led to some state legislation. So panic around human trafficking has been present since the 19th century and has formed domestic laws. And now with the advent of internationalism, it's just gotten worse. Well, that was a bit dark. So let's move on to what we think does work for sex workers, which is unionization. So we did a couple of readings that looked at some attempts that have been made so far with unionization in Australia. Unfortunately, there is no ongoing union that has sex workers as members, essentially, although I think it is worth pointing out that a lot of what organizations like Scarlet Alliance do and other peer organizations do do things that a union would otherwise do, you know, peer-to-peer education, you know, networks of safety, that kind of thing, it's worth acknowledging that those types of things are things that a union can do and doing them in their place is essentially a workers' action and we should consider workers' action to be a form of union action. But yes, that the previous attempts had existed for a while but no longer existed. So we're going to talk a little bit about what problems they ran into and if we were looking to unionisation in the future, what is it that we could do? Evan, can you give a summary of some of the tries so far? Yeah, there have been a a few attempts. I'm aware of an attempt to organise full service workers, primarily in Victoria. Uh, I believe the organiser's name was Phoenix and they were interviewed in Marie Claire. And the union that took them up was the MISOs, which has now been amalgamated into the United Workers Union. So I guess technically one of my unions does cover sex workers. But the strategy at the time was they would start organising brothels and they found that brothels, in fact, Act, just like Uber does now, despite like people seeing themselves as contractors, it constitutes an employment relationship. So even though like it is on paper, not like waged, it in fact constituted an employment relationship. And there was even an award developed in Victoria, which until work choices by Howard, like continued to exist. But what they found was not a huge take up of unionization. The model was that the MISOs would allocate a paid organizer, which they did, to sex work organizing. And that was quite a coup, like defeating the like homophobic views inside the labor movement, because we need to be honest, there's like a real Catholic history to it and a radical feminist element inside certain sections. But they had that resourced organizer and they couldn't actually meet the quotas that were set them by the head union office. And so that kind of slowly burnt out. There were other attempts. I know there was stripper organizing i think it was the queer and esoteric workers union which took on the demart for strippers and similar and it got that from the mea and that had some success for a while but a similar issue of the project it was seemed to be built on a small number of people going by what i've read who burnt out and ended up surrendering the demark for that one back to the media entertainment arts alliance and so there was a further attempt i think later on and members of scarlet alliance probably definitely will have much more history of this than i have Essentially, it seemed to be that people tried to get the demarcation and the established unions were like, 
no, if you do this, you need to get the court case, you need to go through the really hard yards. And so the end result is that Scarlet Alliance, and I think it's worth like being really celebratory in the fact that like as much as like there is a union, it's probably the closest thing to it. And kind of tying into what Charlie says, it's not entirely wrong. You know, it's a peer run organization of workers who are self-organized for their own welfare. And it like has been affiliated with the ACTU in the past, Australian Council of Trade Unions. So that shows that, you know, there's some political consciousness about that. But I guess that's kind of like the main attempts. Otherwise, I think there's been like smaller unofficial networks, but I'm not really that clued into them. I'm not enough of a history nerd or a sociological nerd to catalogue that. I think it's also just worth on a really basic level, you know, why would sex workers unionize? What are the problems that we face? And, you know, on a basic level in brothels doing full service sex work, obviously you have fights around condition of pay, which all workers have, but you do have other predatory practices that brothel owners and managers will use. One which is far too common is the charging for safe sex materials. So charging for condom and lube that the brothel provides to the worker, which then comes at the cost of the worker. Pressure for workers to not work safely. So pressure for workers not to do covered blowjobs. Pressure for workers to see an individual who might be a client who has committed sexual assault in the past that is known to be dangerous, that's known to stealth. Stealth is a practice of removing the condom without the worker's knowledge during the job. These are just some of the basic reasons why sex workers might want to unionize and to fight against bad bosses. In the reading group, Evan, you focused on some points around the last attempt by a number of individuals in Scarlet Alliance and just how overwhelming it is to get past that barrier of legal registration as a union. And you brought up RAFWU as a case of representing workers without actually being a registered union in that way. Can you tell us a little bit about how RAFWU works as a union and what it might mean for other organisations that could potentially represent workers in employer disputes such as sex workers? Yeah, so I think it's worth differentiating like there's a union in practice which is workers self-organizing and there's also like legal definitions and there's a kind of like idea of a registered union which doesn't purely come from affiliation to the ACTU means that you have bargaining rights when it goes to enterprise bargaining so you get certain rights of inspection as well at work sites that are legally entrenched. And to be clear, RAFWU doesn't actually have those. It's an incorporated association in terms of that legal definition. But on the question of bargaining, when Gillard, in trying to retain as many neoliberal anti-worker elements of Howard's work choices as she could with the Fair Work Act, actually left a loophole that the left renegade unions like RAFWU have been able to exploit. She left it so that not just unions could be at the bargaining table, but quote unquote independence, so that the anti-union workers would have a perspective. Of course, in the context of Coles and Woolies, where you have a yellow union like the STA, which actually suppresses workers and tries to assist the corporation with bargaining, often, you know, there's a monetary exchange involved in that and trying to undermine the award. Actually, independence, so-called independence, actually bringing in RAFU and representing a counterbalance. It's like that's actually a way to exploit that. 
technically any incorporated association with the right politics scenario could be at that bargaining table and exploit those same loopholes. So I guess that's one element. And in terms of inspections, like there are sites where Rafu has been able to do those kinds of visits. And actually that's been built up because there's power and where workers have been managed to get like some kind of concession from the bosses. And I think kind of like what really needs to be brought back is workers have whatever powers and conditions that they can enforce. You can have the best agreement, the best award, but actually if you don't have a workforce that's willing to enforce it, then you don't receive any of those benefits, which I guess brings it back to like, you know, Rafu can do that because it's fighting union and the agreement was recently won at Better Red Than Dead is inspirational. It's the first retail industrial action in my lifetime because every single other has been repressed by the SDA and it's one stuff like and it didn't need to be registered to do that yeah you know it reminds me of discussions around what was happening during the accord process and the neoliberalization of Australia under labor in that award system you know individual sites or individual unions that were fighting for a level of pay or a level of conditions that then the rest of the um, industry could follow because that win was was a breakthrough for the industry you know how those unions were crushed by that system and I think that for sex work it is something that is probably a model that makes sense more for sex workers than it would be to not only just get over the barrier of having sex workers register for a registered union or an ACTU affiliated union because some of the problems that came up were problems of privacy. Sex workers, a lot of sex workers obviously need to be private and being registered as a sex worker at an organisation can be problematic depending on who has access to that information, who can request access to that information. And in the reading group, we were discussing that seeking an award might not be the best path for full-service sex workers, brothel sex workers. It definitely can be something that is pursued in other forms of sex work where the employee-employer relationship is a much more traditional one. But in the question of per work site, you know, I think even having either just an incorporated association represent them in an employer dispute or even a wildcat strike. This is the thing about casualization and precarious forms of work is that it presents challenges, but it also presents opportunities because at the end of the day, getting together a wildcat strike for a single brothel actually could probably be a lot easier than a unionized work site without the fear of the entire union being fined and penalized for it. I think also unionization could be useful in addressing some of the issues that sex workers face around financial discrimination as well. Like lots of sex workers have had problems getting bank accounts and home loans and MasterCard and Visa sort of like hold the reins on what can be put on the internet and shared on the internet across a number of different platforms and websites at the moment. So strong sex worker unions would definitely be able to go some way toward addressing some of that in a way that we can't without collective action. Yeah, and I guess like something that ties into that and also like what Charlie says about how things fit different parts of the sector as well. I guess it's it's worth being creative and thinking about, you know, what these discriminations are because I think sometimes it can be easy, well not easy, I think because of the such of the political contestation around full service work to like conflate that with sex work on the whole. And, you know, I think of the fact that like a lot of sex workers are on OnlyFans actually, you know, what's the right for sex workers to claw back some of their commission? You know, how would you be organized to do that is like a question because OnlyFans, like, from my understanding, gouges quite a lot. So like call center workers, for instance, would also be organized on a different basis. And, you know, then you have people who are in bars who there was a bar I know on like, I think Parramatta Road. And I, I really, 
hate the advertising there, but the workers there, like, they don't get paid as, like, the way people talk about sex work. They get paid shit wages. And for them, like, organising would have to be, like, on a much more traditional structure. But across all of these, I think, is the question of right-to-strike politics, is, like, whether it's legal or not. And I think there's, like, challenges and opportunities in every format that actually just needs to be the commitment to, like, acting collectively and fighting. And then you can win against these things and can win against, like, the things that you mentioned, I think, clear, like, the financial discrimination, the fact that I have friends who've struggle with getting bank accounts and like that ties as well into like how do you respond to things like the religious freedoms bills honestly and like the license that that gives people who've got sex worker history who are in other jobs because as much as the right talks about how they love to get people out of sex work actually you know they want to create these kinds of legislations that make it very difficult to transition out and you know it's about having that industrial protection there too so that we have a whole of class organization almost as if we had one big socialist union (laughs) but you know, not to be aspirational. Yeah, you know, and just having this basis of unionization and the attempts for union solidarity as well, you know, I I understand that there has been some union support in spaces for what Scarlet Alliance has done in terms of decrim campaigns. I don't know the exact nitty gritty details, but that solidarity is important. But just imagine what that solidarity would look like if we're actually building the mass power of unions as workers and across work, like the issues that Evan had, had brought up, you know, like when it comes to those broader questions, you know, around religious discrimination, even on the question of reproductive labor, you know, and there was a famous demonstration in Lyon in France, where it was sex workers and housewives occupying a church together as an action of of solidarity, you know, between women, between people who do reproductive labor. Imagine the strength of collective action if we had sex workers and early childhood educators and nurses and hospitals hospitality workers, all working in solidarity with each other for better pay in any of those sectors, or, you know, eventually saying something about reproductive labor as a whole. That's actually what we're working towards, you know, these really, really broad questions. And all these questions that Swerfs think that they're answering by criminalizing sex work, actually, if union power is strong enough across women in, in, in different sectors and work sectors, we then as women get to decide what our labor looks like when it is that strong we have to start at this point so far back where we actually just need to build the workers power build these workers movements but that's actually what we're looking to you know like swerfs and you know religious fanatics they think that it's just this easy fix of of criminalizing it but we actually have to do the work of self-determination and that's not just building our own union but building the solidarity across all unions and all workers so yeah just a just a small little project for us yeah absolutely absolutely i think the potential potentialities for that project are enormous though because there are so many sex workers who sort of like straddle two industries like there's a lot of career whores especially in Australia and New South Wales where we have decrim and that's more possible for people but there are also a lot of people that are also studying or also mothers or also working in hospitality who have problems with mental health who might have experiences with disability sex workers are part of every sector of society already and so building solidarity between sex workers and the other sectors of society that they already inhabit and influence is probably easier than a lot of people assume it to be. 
The next reading group that we have is on the topic of queer sex workers. It will be on Monday the 16th of August at 6pm. It's over Zoom so you can join from anywhere that you are and yeah we'll see you there. Thanks to Evan and Cleo for chatting about sex work. Thanks Charlie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pride and Protest podcast. If you would like to find out more, please follow us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Pride and Protest. That's where you'll find all the reading group events and the Zoom link for it. So please head there if you're planning to come. We're also on Instagram. Our handle is pride.in.protest and our Twitter is Twitter slash Pride and Protest. Cool. See you next time.